I've said, to, told this story before, but when I was in seminary in my middle year, seminary is three years long, and the middle year, everybody said initially before I even went, is a very tough time. And, of course, I said, yeah. But it was a very tough time for me, and it was the first time in my life I ever had a serious crisis of faith. And I found myself saying on, on one occasion, if I have to go back into that chapel again, I am going to scream. But I decided since the dean took attendance in those days <laughs> that I better go. So I came to Evensong. And even song began, and then we sat down to sing Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. <laughs> and it helped me because I realized that if I hadn't have been there, I wouldn't have heard it. And that's true for all of us. We have to be there to hear it. And that's not just true about religious questions or questions of belief in God. It's true about hearing and listening about all of the deep things in our life that we face on a daily basis. Mother Morrison sent me a link this week, of, and I'm going to read to you from it in the course of my sermon. But I commend, this is from the New York Times, and it's an article by David Brooks who I like very much. I've read some of his books. Uh, he's written a new book on character, which is extremely good. And he is talking here about a book written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who at one time was the chief rabbi of England. And he's written a book called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. And it's a very, very good review. And this book is very good. I got it. I have it on my Kindle. And uh, I commend that to you. It's excellent. So more on that in a minute. Today is the Feast of Christ the King, the last Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, some Episcopalians uh, don't uh, observe or keep Christ the King. Probably more do now than, than, than they did at one time because they thought maybe it was getting too close to the Romish cancer. And so you can call this the last Sunday after Pentecost, if you want. But it's also the Feast of Christ the King, and that's true for Lutherans, and it's true for Roman Catholics. The Feast of Christ the King, and the interesting thing about it is, is that when we come in and we say the opening prayer that Mother McNeil sang... That prayer is all but identical to the prayer for, the, for Christ the King in the Roman Catholic Church. Slightly reworded, but virtually identical. So you can act as if, but the collect that we begin with centers us on the idea of the reign of Christ and what it means. It is not an ancient feast. It was promulgated, and that's the term, by Pope Pius XI in 1925. 
1925, who was running Italy? Mussolini. I hope most of you know who Mussolini is. You never know these days. And the church thought it might be a good idea to have a day. It didn't occur the last Sunday after Pentecost then. It was at another time in the liturgical calendar. But uh, it was thought important to assert some things that uh, Pius XI said that we want to lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. And that's still a laudable goal. But we have to understand what it means. Most of us uh, live in a culture where the idea of a king uh, is not highly regarded as American people. So maybe the reign of Christ is better. Or somehow the, uh, the understanding that in Christ we see in Jesus the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development it says in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So this is important in understanding what we mean when we speak of the reign of Christ. There are some people, we're in a very difficult time in the world right now, and there are a lot of people in this country who think that what we need to do is close in on ourselves or maybe understand the reign of Christ as something that is going to push and assert Judeo-Christian values to recover what it is, to take the country back from what is the big question. Where all we're around are people like us. Well, my friends, that train has left the station a long time ago. It's gone. And you and I are called now in the reign of Christ to understand the importance of generosity and the willingness to extend. And what that means for people as they think about uh, the reign of Christ and what it means. A few years ago, uh, as you know, the Episcopal Church, like all churches, uh, always have had kerfuffles. And recently there have been some kerfuffles in the Episcopal Church and there are some Episcopalians who stepped away and formed various vociferous sects. I love that word, Henry Chadwick, vociferous. It's like dropping an Alka-Seltzer in the water, right? Vociferous. And it means split, 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 split. One of these bishops got up and gave a speech, a, a sermon to the convention of the Anglican Church in North America. And he said, you know, in the Episcopal Church these days, it's all about affirmation. But we, on the other hand, are about transformation." Now, you hear me say to you all the time that one of the, start, the central pieces that we always hold to is God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And that each person is valued and beloved of God and bears within them God's imprint. In the biblical languages, when that term is used, it's... It's a word that refers in the ancient world to the way in which they minted coins. 
So when the, the, the guy impressing the coin, he put the seal on top of the precious metal and then hit it with a hammer and it pressed into the metal. We bear the very imprint of God. And so when we think about how we appropriate this, uh, don't you think that with that kind of affirmation, many people are led to lives that have been transformed? If you make a decision to live a life where you're intentional about some things, and you do some things, and you understand that you are, are in a position to, on a daily basis, Understand that the condition of your spiritual condition provides you the opportunity to deal with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. I don't need to use specifically religious language to talk about that. Nor, for that matter, do we need to use therapeutic language. We merely say that it is important for us to understand God's presence and very self as Newman says in the hymn, an essence all divine. So we start talking about the nature of this kingdom and how Christ the King is important. And let me just interject at this point, it may not seem to relate completely, but David Brooks in his article speaks about the situation on the ground for the people of the world. And I'm merely saying this for you to chew on it a little bit. Here's what he says. Excuse me, I've lost my place. The 21st century will not be a century of secularism. It will be an age of desecularization and religious Conflicts. Part of this is demographic. Religious communities produce lots of babies and swell their ranks, while secular communities do not. The researcher Michael Bloom looked back as far as ancient India and Greece and concluded that every non-religious population in history has experienced demographic decline. Humans are meaning-seeking animals. We live, as Sachs writes, in a century that has left us with a maximum of choice and a minimum of meaning. The secular substitutes for religion, nationalism, racism, and political ideology have all led to disaster. So many flock to religion sometimes, especially within Islam, to extremist forms. Do you believe that? Think about it. We're talking about a world where we believe in the reign of God and how do we fit in to that? How do we participate? In John's Gospel today, you'll notice I'm not preaching at any length on the first reading where we have iron bars and fire and a lot of things like that, you know, that's for another time. And from the book of Revelation, it's the introduction, which is actually pretty good. But every time a reading from the book of Revelation comes up, I always have to say this or file it by title. 
The people who heard that read to them or who read that themselves understood everything about it. They knew what the symbols meant. They knew what the metaphors meant. They knew what it was referring to. And I'm one of those people who accept the scholarly opinion, which is substantial, is that what is being described in the book of Revelation has already happened. And the author is speaking about circumstances that they are living in the middle of as being instructive for the future. And the language is very apocalyptic and it's very difficult to wade through, but you need to know some things. It's a commercial message for being a student of the Bible. You know, it might be important to read the Bible once in a while. Reading the Bible is important. It's one of the three things that Episcopalians believe is authoritative as a Christian person. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. Those three things are what informs or gives authority to how we think as Episcopalians. Jesus today is in front of Pilate. I read this through the week. I read this text through the week. And I got, for the first time, I got the feeling of how irritated Pilate must be. He didn't live in Jerusalem, you know. He lived in Caesarea. That's where, they, where the center of the Roman governance of that area was. And he was probably annoyed to have to come to Jerusalem again for some Jewish squabble that was going on. And here we have another person who may be a potential difficulty and cause civil unrest. And what are we going to do about it? And is he being justly accused or isn't he being justly accused? So he gets into the place where he's going to talk to Jesus. He comes in there and I just sense that he probably was irritated and irritable. So he says, so you are a king. And Jesus said, who told you I was a king? Who's been talking about me and saying that? But the important piece to this part of the reading is not that about whether he thinks himself to be a king or not. It's that he says, my kingdom is not from this world. So in other English translations of the Bible, uh, the authorized version in our tradition, which we call the King James Bible, the King James Version, says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when you read it that way, you think, well, his kingdom must be somewhere else. Not here. But from this world has to do with understanding the kingdom as not a participant in the values that are held very dear in our particular culture, or in any culture uh, for that matter, that somehow we believe that the way in which we understand this, we have an overconfidence of our intellects, our resources, our technology, 
our initiative and we believe that it's enough. When I came here in 1993, I came from Sausalito, which is in Marin County, and when I was there, it was still kind of hippie. It was a different world altogether, and it was a lot of fun, too, you know, with the houseboat community and all the stuff that was going on there. It was a lot of fun. I met a lot of interesting people. One guy just popped into my head, Stuart Brand, the author of the Whole Earth Catalog. Do you remember the Whole Earth Catalog? He was a very interesting guy, and he was interested in other things besides the Whole Earth Catalog. He lived on a houseboat in Gate 5. But when I came here, I came into the world of the double E. All problems have solutions. If we can just engineer it properly, we'll figure it out and we'll be able to do this now. In 1993, the Silicon Valley was flying high in April. Enormous success. People were making huge amounts of money. People still are uh, to some degree, but it just seemed to have, to me, it was like staggering, you know? Extremely bright, interesting people, people who were imaginative, people who uh, thought in ways that were very, very interesting. I never heard anybody, and rarely have I since I came, about the role and the importance of serendipity. Sometimes you can be the right person in the right place at the right time. Or you can just be a person in the right place at the right time, you know, and it rubs off in some ways. But you know, all of us are the beneficiaries of serendipitous circumstances, the positive ones, and all of us have experienced, I believe there exists something too called negative serendipity. And sometimes you can be in a situation where things conspire in a way that produce adversity and suffering. And that's when our spiritual condition becomes an important thing. I mention this because Jesus is describing a kingdom not from this world, a new set of values, a new way of looking at how things are going to be, that that's part of what it is. And of course, in the, at the end, we cut this reading off because Pilate is speaking, uh, Jesus is speaking about the truth. It's not in this reading, but Pilate is going to say, what is truth? And he gets no answer. He gets no answer. The people who wrote John's gospel believed that the truth was seen in Jesus' revelatory and redemptive action. In life experience, seeing things that allowed them to put two and two together spiritually. Remember when you read John's gospel, we have God walking around on the earth. That's how Jesus appears in this gospel. 
And the Johannine community said, if God were a human being and were walking around on the earth, this is what he would be like. But the interesting thing about all of this is that it's not unique to him in one sense because he has provided through his mighty works and through his teaching tools we can use. He's given us a read me and how to about how to extend this. They also believed that when Jesus was not here, the relationship that they had with him would not end even with physical death. And they called that eternal life. But they also understood that the values of the kingdom of God can be seen appropriated and lived here. In the bulletin, that quotation from Hans Kung, the great theologian, German theologian, wonderful things he says in this book. It will be a kingdom where, in accordance with Jesus' prayer, God's name is truly hallowed, his will is done on earth, men and women will have everything in abundance, all sin will be forgiven, and all evil overcome. It will therefore be a kingdom holy as the prophets foretold of absolute righteousness, of unsurpassable freedom, of dauntless love, of universal reconciliation, of everlasting peace. In this sense, therefore, it will be the time of salvation, of fulfillment, of consummation, of God's presence, the absolute future. And I believe, I know it's true for me, that I have actually had those experiences even for a nanosecond as I live now, as I place myself before the presence of God. I had a colleague say to me once uh, that in the parish that she served, uh, all of us have to read books like How to Deal with Difficult People. And there was a particularly difficult individual who was at a meeting and sitting in the room. It was during the day. And they were sitting in the room and the, and the sunlight came through a window and shone on this person whose face was in repose. You know what I mean? It was just still. She was absolutely still. And she said, I looked at her and I saw her and I said, you know, that must be the way that God sees her all the time. So the trick, maybe that's the wrong word to use, is how do we do that with each other all the time? And Hans Kung has said something about what the kingdom might be. It's not going to come by some apocalyptic moment where God engages in a divine ethnic cleansing and leaves all the good people. It's going to happen as we cooperate with the divine initiative in each one of us, that we understand that we're living in the reign of God and that we are the instruments of making it so and making it real.
So as we enter the season of Advent next Sunday, and now a season of anticipation and hope and maybe a little anxiety for the coming of the Savior, we've been set up in the liturgical calendar for understanding that the outcome is going to be good and we're part of God's gracious reign. Amen.